0: Welcome to Great Australian Lives. For Tobin Brothers, Brothers Funerals. Celebrating Lives. Here's your host, Laura Turner. Hello and welcome to another special edition of Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. I'm Laura Turner. Our guest tonight might just take us into some uncomfortable territory. His writing writing has been described as raw and filled with a rare honesty that confronts the reader with the question... Can we escape who we are? Can we escape our past? In exploring issues of intergenerational trauma, poverty, addiction and mental health in both his books and his newspaper articles, he has established himself as one of the most important literary voices of his generation. It is my pleasure to welcome journalist and author Rick Morton to Great Australian Lives. Rick, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me,
1: Laura. That's a very generous assessment of my career so far
0: thank you. Uh, No, it's 100% true. I mean, voices like yours who really confront who we are and what we're doing and why we're here, I personally think is so important, you know, to be honest about where we've come from and who we are. And in saying that, you've just released your third book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, and that after the confines of restrictions of COVID last year when most authors had to publish, publish their books via Zoom, you must feel it to be a bit of a novelty to be able to do this in person, to, to, to go to book releases in actual oh bookstores.
1: Well, yes, and I, and I got to go to my first festival in a year in Adelaide just a couple of weeks ago and it felt the vibe in the air wow. was astonishingly good because everyone was just wanting to have a good time it was was very yeah I feel very lucky I I (laughs) skated in by the skin of my teeth I think
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) I can only imagine. Now, our listeners may have heard or read your critically acclaimed debut memoir, 100 Years of Dirt. And so much of what you wrote about in that book informs your work now. So, I actually want to start talking to you about that book rather than the new one, if that's okay. You were working at The Australian as their social affairs writer, covering a lot of issues you actually experienced yourself. Was it hard for you to decide to make a memoir? No, I mean, it was the one thing I always
1: wanted to do and not for any kind of starry-eyed literary reasons, but it was just such a a story that was ingrained in my life. And it was something that my mother and I, you know, always talked about because our, you know, well, my beginning, certainly in Outback Australia on this vast cattle station and the events that followed informed almost everything that happened since. And I kind of measured my life in in two parts Mm. and there was before this this horrible calamity on the station and then everything that came after. So I really, it was a story that I, I mm. had to get out in some form. You know, people say, you know, yes. maybe it was cathartic or whatever, but I just needed to write that first so I could do other things.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, and it's been so very, very well received. that. Calamity on the station you're talking about involved your brother, didn't it?
1: It did. Like you know, I was seven um, when this this all kind of kicked off, and we were living about 15 hours west of Brisbane on on Mount Howard Station. Um, if you keep going west, you'll hit Aramanga, which is the furthest town from the sea in Australia, and then there's nothing else until you get into South Australia, and even then, there's not much to look at. Um, so we had this kind of idyllic existence. It was tough. It was brutal, but you know, I had a good childhood, and then. You know, on Father's Day in 1994, mm-hmm. my brother and I were in the the jackaroo shed helping a, a jackaroo fix a motorbike when he'd lost a bolt into the car servicing pit, which is, you know, you drive the car over the top, but a full-grown adult can stand up underneath and let out all the oil and, and petrol yes. and whatnot. And my brother went down there yeah. to, to get it and couldn't see in the dark, so he asked for a torch, and the jackaroo gave him a lighter. And the whole thing just went up in a fireball. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning of the end, I think.
0: Mm. And I know that your brother uh, went on to live a a pretty painful or have some pretty painful chapters in his life.
1: Yeah. he. um, I mean, that for him, uh, for both of us really in different ways. I mean, I was, you know, he was burned to uh, 45% of his body, third degree burns. And we didn't know if he was going to live. And, you know, the mission to get him just off the station was hours long because we had to wait for the Royal Fund Doctor Service mm-hmm. to get back from the Birdsville races. And we didn't know if he was going to live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time my sister had just mm-hmm. been born, she was three weeks old. So by the time they go to hospital in the plane, my mother, my brother and my sister, I'm left at home on the cattle station with my dad, um, who then starts an affair, which I witness uh, with our 19-year-old governess. And for different reasons, my brother and I were both incredibly traumatised by what that led to. You know, he had the physical trauma, but also he was very mm. close to his dad. And so, you know, losing him from our life, um, which is what happened, was a massive deal for him. And and similarly, losing him from my life, for me, was traumatic for different reasons, because I never really had him in my life in the first place. I wasn't that close to him. I was a bit of a weird kid. <laughs> uh, mm. And... But still, uh-huh. it doesn't stop you craving that affection from this parental figure. And, Absolutely. And, you know, my brother mm. turned to, to drug addiction and, and ice and methamphetamine, um, and I could have easily gone down that road. Um, and it's not for making better choices, but I just, you know, Shade had something else in store for me, I guess.
0: Mm. Hundred Years of Dirt is a book, um, as we've mentioned, about family, about trauma and about love for one another. Um, can you describe for those who haven't read it about that situation and the family you were born into, and, and you've mentioned it was, you know, a, a remote uh, living conditions that you were in. Um, but, but Dad, as you've just talked about, was a pretty tough guy, wasn't he, for one, of was, and
1: necess- Yeah, and necessarily so. I mean, he came to us uh, mm. essentially an already broken man because his childhood on Pandy Pandy Station, uh, which is just south of Birdfall, Uh, One of the most remote places you can get in Australia, you know, this station itself is 6,600 square kilometres, you know, 1.6 million acres. And, you know, he was one of seven and his father, my grandfather, George Morton, was just an incredibly cruel and violent human being who Mm -hmm. was not just cruel and violent because Mm -hmm. that's what things were like back then, but he actually took great delight in it. And when I was researching the book, I wanted to mm. to flesh out that story because I didn't want my father to be a villain. You know, he did a lot of things that harmed us as a family, but I don't think he was a bad person. Mm-hmm. And in fact, his childhood right. was abusive and violent. And, you know, that very much formed him, I think, as a human being and, and made him mm. uh, buckle when, when things got particularly tough, particularly when his, you know, his son my brother Toby was burned, and he he was there, and that was I think that was what brought him undone.
0: Right? Yeah, I, you can't imagine what that would do to a parent. I mean, you more than most, you saw it happen to your brother, but uh, very very traumatic thing to happen to anyone, especially to witness. Your mum Deb, she was instrumental in the shaping of you, wasn't she?
1: Yeah, she's she's an amazing woman, and this is you know so like she was also there when this accident happened, but she was, all, she was the one that went to Brisbane with my brother and was there for the two months of the recovery and, and just horrific um, moments of watching your child suffer in the burns ward because every day when they change the, the bandages, for example, or they have to get bathed, mm. it's just, you know, screaming because it's so painful and skin grafts mm. and the whole kit and caboodle. So, mm. you know, my mum and my father both dealt with it in different ways. Mum solidified as a person, I think. She became this just this tough maternal figure where she took on all of the stress Mm. and the pain. Um, And then, you know, from the moment they got back to the station two months later, my dad told her he was leaving her. He froze the bank accounts. He kicked us all out. And we had literally nothing, like literally nothing, to the point where, you know, we had to go straight into emergency public housing in Charleville, which is five hours away, while mum attempted to get, you know, a semblance of a life together where we planned what we would do because she suddenly had three kids to support and no work history apart from a brief stint at David Jones when she was a 19 year old. Um, and she'd been working wow. for my father on all these cattle stations for 15 or so years. So, just, to, you know, I'm just, I try to imagine she was almost the age I am now when that happened. In fact, she was younger than me. Mm. I'm 34. Mm. And I try to imagine myself wow. in that position and what I would actually do. And she did it all with such grace, you know? Like, she was such uh, a loving parent. And, like, for all of the the vacuum of love elsewhere in our lives, she did everything she could to just fill it. And on nothing, on the smell of an oily rag. Yeah, she's a beautiful woman. And she's also... Yeah. You know, she always used to complain, not complain, but she used to say, Oh, I'm so dumb, or I don't know what I'm doing. I should have been able to go to university or get some skills. And A, I always said to her, When would you have had the time? Like, you were trying to keep food on the table for us. (laughs) But also, B, like, she's so skilled in what I used to say the school of life, but also she's just a very curious person and loves, she's engaged Mm -hmm. by the world in a really basic, simple way, which I love. And she taught that to us. And I think that's a massive gift to get from anyone.
0: That is an enormous gift. Now, you wrote in 100 Years of Dirt, and I'm quoting your writing now, trauma we know now has a knack of worming its way into your bones. It imprints itself on some 3,000 sites in your DNA and on every chromosome. And it grows with you like a knotted tree Around a stake. That that's um, that's a, a beautiful way of of describing something um, which can be so horrendous for people. Um, what what are your theories and the science behind um, how trauma affects us and our brains?
1: Yeah, so I mean we're learning more every day about this, and and one of the new fields it's still being tested around the edges, but we we think we know now. As a scientific community, that trauma is passed on through what we call epigenetics, which is not the DNA itself. Our DNA is kind of static, unless there's a copy in error when, you know, the two different sets of DNA are combined in reproduction. But epigenetics are kind of, they're markers that attach to the genes and tell the genes how they can express themselves. And those are things that can be passed from generation to generation in the moment. So if you, you know, if your grandfather has a traumatic experience, it's not changing the nature of his genes, but it is changing the, the way they're expressed. And that, you know, there was this amazing study of the Överkalix oh. people in Scandinavia where they had 700 years worth of data about infant mortality rates, Um, the weight of children and what was available in terms of food and nourishment because they went through these kind of alternating decades of feast and famine. And so this study could actually go back 700 years. And and I've forgotten the the, the overarching details now, but essentially uh, a grandmother or grandfather who went through a period of famine, that actually had a direct effect on whether their grandchild was healthy. And it was different for women and men. Um, so, you know, someone who, I think it was uh, a grandmother who went through a period of feast, had a more sickly grandchild because they hadn't, you know, had the nourishment or they had too much nourishment and they kind of bred problems further down the line, whereas the reverse was true if it was a grandfather and that grandchild. And so these are things that we can actually study thanks mm. to, you know, scientists and the data. But it's incredible. we are learning, yeah, I mean, and more broadly still, I mean, the intergenerate, intergenerational effects of poverty, which is a type of trauma, because it's so consuming. I mean, I've got it in that book where I write about just the act of being brought up in a house where finances are scarce can shrink the human brain by 20%, up to 20% in terms of volume, but also surface area. And it's not because they don't have access to the right food, although that's definitely an issue. And it's not because they're not getting sent to the right schools. It's just the stress of poverty itself. And of course, that then reduces your executive reasoning, your ability to think more rationally about lifestyle decisions. Mm. And so it actually does manifestly alter the way that you make choices later on in life. So if you go on to have your own kids after growing up in poverty, you may actually um, live a different standard um, because of your childhood and then pass it on to your own children if, if that becomes yeah. a generational thing. So, yeah, it's really fascinating. There's a lot going that on in fabulous. this area at the moment. Yeah,
0: that's absolutely fascinating. Well, this is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives and plenty more with journalist Rick Morton in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives and visit tobinbrothers.com.au for more information. Our guest tonight is acclaimed journalist and writer Rick Morton, senior reporter for the Saturday paper and author of three books, A 100 Years of Dirt, On Money and his latest release, My Year of Living Vulnerably. Now, Rick, we were talking uh, in the earlier segment about um, 100 Years of Dirt and and the trauma that you described that you went through through in your childhood. One question I want to know first, before we sort of go back to those, I guess, milestone events and pivotal people in your life, how difficult was it for you to go back? I mean, sure, you're you're used to researching other people's lives, but researching your own life and your own family, did that bring back some ghosts that weren't necessarily welcome? Look, it did, but, I mean, I, I guess, I mean, what I always say is I couldn't have written
1: that book any earlier than what I did. I was 30 when I started writing it. Mm. And I'd spent my 20s really wrestling with this stuff. And I went through periods of anger and and even, I would say, hatred um, and and not being in the right frame of mind to to look at these things um, as dispassionately as you can. Because, you know, the first thing as a reader that you notice if you're reading a writer who is angry is that you don't trust their emotional state. Um, because you're like, well, what are you hiding? Mm. What's the overarching emphasis here? And so I could never have written Mm. that book in that state. And I didn't want to. Like, I'm not that kind of person, and I've done a lot of growing up. But also, you know, I I was resolutely um, married to the idea that I wanted to tell something as close to the truth as I could. And that meant, you know, for example, talking about my grandfather, I'd grown up hearing stories from my dad and my mum my dad almost never talked about it to us, but he, he told mum all these stories about his farmer and how violent he was. Mm. And I went out west to Birdsville, mm. hoping to disprove some of it, quite frankly. I thought this can't be mm. as bad of as course. I've been told. I, I thought it must have been embellished. But when I got out there, speaking to you know George's own nephew and people who lived and grew up with George for decades, they actually reinforced... How bad he was as a person, yeah. and in fact, I think they went further in some cases than even I expected them to. And so it was this really clarifying uh-huh. moment that you know, and and you know, I don't think my dad was ever going to like what I wrote. Um, I certainly don't think he read it. Mm. But um, you know, he unfriended me on Facebook when the book came out, which was unfortunate. Um, but I think it was, <sighs> you know, I, I went into it so willing to find out what actually was the truth. And it was difficult in that sense because you don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but also these things happened mm. and they happened to us and they ruined our family. Mm. And to mm. if you're not going to be honest about something that you're writing, there's no point writing it, I don't think.
0: Was it hard for you? I mean, you, you being honest about all the members of your family, you've got to be honest about yourself too.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, there are moments in my life, um, some of them longer than others, where I don't, come across as an edifying character like you know I wasn't respectful enough of my own mother I think when I was in my early 20s because I was embarrassed I was ashamed of the life mm. that I'd come from that you know that I hadn't read the right books or been educated in the right way I was desperately unhappy um, in my own sexual identity I was just a bit of an angry young adult to be quite honest and I think you know having to write mm. a you kind of confront those things about myself and the idea that I might be coming that I might even, at my most, you know, rigorous, might still be telling a story that seems right in my head, but other people would disagree with. Which is why I kind of spent this whole chapter mm. talking about the way memory can be fallible, uh, because I just wanted to be mm. clear as clear as I could. But you know, it was difficult, and it was difficult to be open. I guess, particularly then, about you know the mental health challenges that I experienced and the drug use that I undertook in my twenties because I hadn't even told my mum about that. So that was a bit of a shock to her system, the poor thing.
0: (laughs) Now, as we talked before, your mum has, um, you know, been a role model for you and, and and such a uh, important part of your life. Um, we mentioned, or you mentioned earlier that it was when you all came back or when she and your brother and sister came back from, um, those months in hospital that dad said it's, it's time to leave. Um, where did you go and what, I know you said you went into emergency housing, but mm. how did she put the pieces back together? How? Where did you end up?
1: That period is such a, um, a mixed period in my head because I've got all these different memories. But we essentially, I mean, we had to get mm. off the station. So we knew mm. one or two people in Charleville because a really good friend of the family that we knew in, in Charleville who came to get us. And she was the one that went with mum to, you know, Centrelink to fill out all the forms to get the single parent pension, um, to get mm. welfare. You know, people discourage welfare use in Australia, but without it, we would have been dead. And they got us yes. emergency public housing in Charleville. So there was this kind of section of Charleville, um, which is obviously walled off from everyone else. It's, you know, it's the public houses, um, mm. people on the commish. And, mm. you know, suddenly we're there together as a family, our new family, my brother's still, you know, he's just got out of hospital. He's wearing these pressure bandages all over his body. And then we all got the chicken pox. Mm. Um, so I just remember it just being this. And we had nothing. We had no furniture. I remember the street itself. And this is another indictment, not on the people, but on the systems that influence this stuff. But the domestic violence on that street was harrowing. I was seven. And I remember, I still remember distinctly the yelling and the screaming and the smashing of glass as these families who are so downtrodden by circumstance fight and Mm. tear each other apart because they're so stressed. And I remember not knowing precisely what that meant as a kid, but knowing that it wasn't right. And so mum, you know, we used this Mm. place as a base for the rest of 1994 while she desperately tried to get the money together so we can all move to Boona, which is a little country town southwest of Brisbane where her brother, my uncle, lives. And so that was where we, she gave us a choice. She said, you know, you guys were raised out here in the outback. Do you want to stay here or do you want to go to the city? Which is, you know, we thought Boona was the city. It's got 3,000 people in it, but, um, you know, it seemed big (laughs) to us. So we chose Boona. And so she scrambled to save all this money. Her brother took out a $3,000 loan um, to get um, a thrifty truck um, to come and get what little furniture dad let her keep. (laughs) Um, which was still on the station, so we didn't have it with mm. us at that point. And then she bundled us all onto a sleeper train, and we caught the train to Ipswich, wow. um, which is the closest train stop to Boonock. And yeah, I remember that train trip very yeah. well because it felt like an adventure. And that's, you know, that is the, the gift of that kind of parenting <laughs> where they make it feel like it's fun for you. Mm. And I knew that
0: everything yeah, had changed. That's beautiful
1: but she kept as much of it from us as she could.
0: What a beautiful human being. Your other book, On Money, um, goes into this sort of thing. You mentioned before um, kids sort of um, trying to fight their way out of their own circumstances. And On Money goes into that sort of thing, doesn't it, where you might have come from a scenario where you didn't have much money and sort of unconsciously pass that on to your own children. Yeah, there's two ways you can go, right? So, and because my mum... Automatically,
1: overnight, had to become the greatest finance minister Australia has ever known. Um, She had to manage her budget (laughs) down to the last five cents. And she used to sit there every day. She Mm. still does this. She sits there at night with her notepad and her Mm -hmm. pen and paper and she does the sums, you know, and she knows how much is in her bank account. She knows how much everything costs. And she knows um, the last moment that she can pay a bill before she incurs a late fee because the late fee then spirals mm. out of control. So you can't allow yourself to get mm-hmm. to that point. So I, even though she did her best to shield us from this, I was a more mature seven or eight year old than, I, than my older brother was. So, she, you know, mum trusted me with, yeah. you know, details about how stressful things were. And I also just picked up a lot because I was a very observant kid. And so when I became an adult, I decided that I wanted to uh, – suddenly I was earning an income. It was almost nothing as a cadet journalist, but I was earning my own money. Mm. And so I just went stupid, mm-hmm. to put it bluntly. Like I spent money that I did not have. Yeah. I thought, oh, I've got this. Yep. I'm an adult now. And I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I went into the credit card debt immediately on turning 18 and then couldn't afford the repayments, mm. And then I became stuck in this own cycle, partly like because me. of my own – Yes, I well, I mean, so there's that, right? But then there's – I know other kids who who grew up with, with parents, single parents who were not good with money. And I've got a friend like right. that, Kylie, and, and she watched, you know, this kind of dysfunction in her own house. And she grew up becoming what my mother was, which is the best planner. Like she's got an Excel spreadsheet. Um she, she budgets every last inch of her life as an adult because she's so terrified of being stuck in that dysfunction, whereas I am mm. terrified of being under the kind of stress it? that my mum was under. And I just remember thinking, mm. as long as I've got the ability to earn money, I never want to live like that if I've got the choice. And, you know, it, oh. it's awful. And mum had no choice. And I just went absolutely hog wild in my 20s even though I had no means to live this lifestyle and got myself in a lot of trouble because of it. It took me a decade to, to, yeah. to like work my way out of that hole. And I kind of make the point in that book as well, I'm doing okay now, not because I overhauled the way I think about money. I still don't treat money as if it's real. And you know, as my friend joked to me the other day, she said, if you walked past $50 on the street, you would keep walking because I'm too embarrassed to pick it up. And she's right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm too embarrassed to use coupons and I would rather spend the money that I earn now on A, my mother, but also on things that make my life less stressful. And I think it's partly because I've still got a lot of residual stress and I just can't mentally go back
0: there. Yeah, I can understand that. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Tobin Brothers now offer fully live-streamed services so that anyone who cannot attend the funeral of a loved one can still view the service and participate. For more information, visit tobinbrothers.com.au and more with writer Rick Morton in just a moment. You're listening to Great Australian Lives with Laura Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. Our guest tonight is writer and journalist Rick Morton, who has just released his third book, My Year of Living Vulnerably, available at all good bookstores now, of course. Now, we've discussed your remarkable childhood, Rick, and the generational trauma that you inherited, and it's been fascinating to understand how trauma is passed on. Really incredible insight that you've given us. But take us back to 2019 when you you were diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Was that diagnosis life-changing for you or did you go into that doctor's office knowing that's what they were going to say? No, I'd never heard of it before,
1: um, which, which kind of meant that it was life-changing. You know, I, I went there because I knew something was wrong with me and I'd spent my 20s in this kind of rolling series of mental breakdowns. They felt like they were world-ending. I averaged about one a year for about 7 years there. I always just thought because my initial what do you diagnosis mean by a mental at,
0: breakdown. How do you <laughs>
1: Well, that's a good question because it felt it was more severe than, you know, having an anxiety attack. But, you know, and I couldn't piece together the bits of the puzzle at the time. But what was happening was that the, I was encountering these kind of moments in my my personal life um, involving close friends and attachments that at the kind of threat of them, you know, if they started dating someone new or if they started kind of moving out of my life, I would become consumed with panic at this idea that they were abandoning me. And it was completely irrational because these people loved me and I loved them. Not boyfriends, by the way, or really, just like friendships. And it would yeah. kind of fell this domino that would, you know, I wouldn't be able to concentrate at work. I would be suicidal. I was going in and out of these horrible, horrible panic attacks. I couldn't sleep at night because they would wake me up while I was sleeping, um, as in these attacks. Mm. It it was just completely bodily as well. It wasn't just in the mind. It was like my body was attacking me. And I was only ever diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I just thought they were really bad versions of that. And, you know, they would last about three months. And I would, at the worst of it, I would blow up these friendships and I would lash out at people and push them away because I was trying to convince myself I now realized that I wasn't loved and that these people were going to leave me. And it wasn't until 2019 when I got that complex PTSD diagnosis that I realized it was because of what happened on that cattle station when my brother was in hospital. And I watched my dad having that affair with the governess. You know, I was a seven-year-old boy who desperately needed the one person who was there to care for him. And instead, he he shacked mm. up with the, the governess and, and kind of abandoned me in that moment, you know, 1,500 kilometres away from my, my other family. And so having mm. not just the label, but the therapy and the treatment for trauma is very specific and it's very different to the therapy you will get for anxiety, um, depression and other types of mental illness. In fact, trauma is more of a physiological condition in the brain. It, it's the brain doing what it's meant to do and um, what we evolved to do, which is, snap freeze these horrible memories of acute pain particularly when you're a kid with all of the sensations that you felt at the time because it's hoping that you can survive that moment when it's really emotionally so painful but what it does then is bring those memories and those sensations back later on in life when it thinks that you're encountering something similar and so it's an early warning system Mm -hmm. and you know back in the caveman days it was very useful if we were attacked by a tiger, to avoid future attacks. But in the modern world, in, in my life, my brain was looking out for a threat that just wasn't there anymore. And that's
0: So It's what sort of like a fight or
1: flight? 100%. It's all mediated through the amygdala, which is yep. the oldest part of the brain, and that's where the fight or flight um, response mm-hmm. comes from. And that's exactly what was happening to me as an adult. Uh, every year... Um, And I didn't have an answer for it and nobody had ever suggested, despite the fact that I had just written a book about everyone else's trauma in my family, it never occurred to me and nobody ever suggested to me that it might actually apply to me. I just thought I was unwell, Mm. but in a more typical way. And it turns out trauma is very common. Yeah. And we don't talk about it enough in, you know, society.
0: Tell us about My Year of Living Vulnerably. This is the new book that you have out now. It's it's a perfect time, isn't it, given everyone's sort of coming out of COVID lockdowns and everyone's been feeling very vulnerable about themselves and their financial positions and their families and their health. Good time to release this book. Yeah, and it was not planned
1: that way. I mean, when I pitched this book to (laughs) HarperCollins, the publisher, It was kind of the middle of 2019 and no one had ever heard of the coronavirus, Um, even if we had heard of SARS and um, the MERS, which are both versions of coronavirus. We certainly didn't know that there was another one brewing or about to be brewing uh, in mainland China. So it was just, you know, these were things I was already interested in. And it just so happens, I guess, maybe it's not luck. I mean, the things that make us human, the things that are interesting about the human condition are the things that we're all tested during the pandemic, you know, it's our desire to be close to people, um, to, to have physical contact, um, to be living the life that gives you the most satisfaction, um, not necessarily the most happiness, because that's something that you can't just grab. It's something that you have to work toward. But the pandemic kind of shut us all in. It, it stole from us the things that are most vital, I think, and then made us certainly in my case, made me completely re-examine everything that I held dear Um, because I used to think I was really good (laughs) at being alone, for example. I'm great in my own company. I I spend most of my week Mm -hmm. alone and then go out on the weekend to see my mates. Mm -hmm. But um, having the choice taken from you during the lockdown, I realized that Mm -hmm. I was actually more in need of these things than I had been telling myself. And so it became this kind of, Mm -hmm. I guess, this confluence of all these different things, which made the book more relevant than, than even I could possibly have imagined.
0: And how's it being received?
1: I'm honestly blown away, and partly that's because I have such a low self-esteem. <laughs> like, I don't, I've never liked my oh. writing. I, I know that, like, it sounds like I'm being falsely modest, but I genuinely cannot tell. No. No, no, genuinely cannot mm. tell when I finish something if it's good or not. No idea. And I do it because Mm -hmm. it's the only thing I think I know how to do. Even when I give it to my publisher and they say nice things about it, I'm like, yeah, but you kind of have to because you paid money for it. So, um, (laughs) like, maybe you're (laughs) just telling me it's good so that I go out there and, and say it's also good. But people have been saying such nice things about it. And the thing that is the most joyous for me is to get messages from people who've just started reading it and going, oh my God you could have written this about me because as a reader, that's what you want. You're reading to discover yourself. And honestly, it's the best praise um, I could ever get. And I'm so – I'm just really stoked, to be quite honest.
0: Well, I think you need to start listening to it and believing it. (laughs) Your books are very highly acclaimed.
1: (laughs) As I tell people, there's a statute of limitations on praise for me. It's about 10 minutes. And then I forget it, <laughs> <laughs> and then I need to hear it again. So, which makes me sound very needy, which I guess You're I am. Like a and, and I discuss that. <laughs> I am like a goldfish when it comes to praise, but if you say something mean about me, I will remember it for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> You'll n- never forget it. You're basically <laughs> describing me here. I'm, I'm like, this guy is writing about me. We've talked so much about trauma and there'll be people listening who will identify with lots of what we've talked about. What would your advice be to people who are reading your books because they've been through trauma in terms of getting through it? What, what therapy have you been through and what, what would you um, suggest? Everyone's got to try what works for them. And, like, I'm not a health professional, so I wouldn't dare
1: say. But in my case, mm. I use a whole bunch of different things that I've uh, kind of collected like a bower bird over the last 10 years, some of them which helped me even though I didn't know I had a trauma diagnosis at the time, and some since which definitely helped. So, like, I did a thing when I was first diagnosed and I was following the Prime Minister around, would you believe it, Scott Morrison, on the campaign election trail. <laughs> so, you know, these are 16-hour days. We never knew where we were going when we got yeah. on that plane and they didn't tell us until just before we landed. Mm-hmm. And every day I was doing half an hour exercises where I would progressively kind of clench muscles from my toe right up into my face and then relax them in in, in sequence. So I'd start with my toe and then my feet and then my shins and then my thighs um, even my gluteus maximus and then like my eyelids and forehead. <laughs> and it's actually quite a stunning um, thing because it brings you back into yourself. And that's one of the problems with trauma is you tend to leave mm-hmm. your body you know, in a dissociating kind of way. And so doing this for half an hour um, every morning and every night um, was actually so useful. But you've got to do it. You know, I did neurofeedback, which is very complicated and I won't get into it here. But it's essentially, you know, they read your brain waves and try and trick your brain into thinking the right way. Because a lot of the stuff with trauma is it's in the background. And it's very difficult to access nice. with talk therapy, which is what a lot of Medicare funds. And so there's all these different kind of approaches, but the, the, the one that you have to be able to do first, the most important one is to get the, the narrative down, but you need to be able to say out loud what happened because a lot of people have trauma and are totally unaware that it is guiding their life. And until you build that awareness and actually tease out where it might've started, you can't actually begin to to
0: tackle it. Absolutely fascinating stuff. This is Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives, and in these challenging times, Tobin Brothers offer a range of very practical solutions to help you plan a funeral and pay tribute to your loved one. For more with Rick Morton, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to Great Australian Lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our guest tonight is acclaimed journalist and writer Rick Morton, senior reporter for the Saturday paper and author of three books, 100 Years of Dirt, On Money, and his latest release, My Year of Living Vulnerably. Um, incredible um, advice and insights that you've given us, Rick. Um, you, you've got a new book out. What does twenty twenty one hold for you? Are you um, lots of sort of uh, bookstore releases and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, it's already started. And I'm all, it's a good problem to have, but I'm also <laughs> already very tired. I love my nap time, um, so I've already got uh, you know a list of festivals that I'll be going to right at, right up until October at this point. Um, so there's almost you know one or two things every month now, um, and the next couple of weeks are going to be very busy. Wow. Um, with online events and and book launches as we kind of do the publicity side of things. And this is like, it's always, people, people always tell me they're like, Oh, this is the fun part of writing the book. Um, To me, the fun part is coming up with what I'm going to write next. uh, And I'm not going to have the time to really think about it until, well, you know, I love coming up with the idea and I love pitching it to the publisher. I then hate writing it. Mm. Um, I like some parts of the writing. <laughs> um, but, but mostly it feels like I've just done myself a massive disservice. And so there's a very small window mm. coming up where I get to do the best part of my job, which is think of what I might do next. And that's very exciting to me. I love <laughs> the, I- the idea that I might and do, do you something know what completely that is? different. I've got, I've got some ideas. I, do, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the subject is because I don't know. But I want to do a of kind of a, a yeah. narrative nonfiction book about an issue or an event or a person Um, because I've, I've, I've had enough of talking about myself for the time being. Um, my mum will, yeah. will say that's a good yep. thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just want to tell... Hi, I want to tell other people's... Yeah, God love um, I want to tell other people's yep. stories and, and get into those more gritty journalistic style things that, you know, Chloe Hooper and Helen Garner yeah. have done so well already.
0: And that you're so good at as well. Well, My Year of Living Vulnerably is out now and available at all good bookshops. Rick Morton, thank you so much for being with us. It has been um, so entertaining and so insightful. Thank you so much for having Having me that was a really good chat I really enjoyed it if you've enjoyed our chat with Rick Morton tonight and you'd like to share it with a friend subscribe to the great Australian lives podcast and of course join me the same time next week when we celebrate another great Australian life this is I'm Laura Turner and this is great Australian lives for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives you're listening to great Australian lives with, with Laura Turner, Turner for Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives